Hello, and welcome to Research Software Engineering Stories. This episode of RSE Stories is brought to you from the UK and Europe, in collaboration with the Society of Research Software Engineering in the UK. My name is Peter Schmidt, I'm a Research Software Engineer at the University College of London, and I will be your host for this episode. My guest for this episode is Kate Court. Kate is a Research Software Engineer at the University of Newcastle in the northeast of England, UK. But before she went into programming, Kate trained in Arts and Humanities, where she got a PhD. And we talk about this during our interview. Here now my conversation with Kate. Hello Kate and welcome to the show. Kate, I find your background really interesting. You started with degrees in art, paint and printmaking, leading to a PhD. But then you switched to a master's in computer science. How did all of this come about? Hello, thank you for having me. After I finished studying my PhD, I worked in various research and teaching roles, always staying in academia and always doing fixed term contracts. I started to think that I wanted to look for something that perhaps would give me a bit of a more stable career path. I was working on a research project called Creative Fuse, which involves the five universities across the northeast of England. And that looked at the role that creative and digital companies can play in in bringing more value to the region. So I started to see areas of crossover between kind of creative work and digital work. And that possibly kind of opened my eyes to a bit of more of what software engineering was. And my brother is a software engineer. I'd like to say I'd researched it thoroughly and thought it through before I, I did a master's in computer science, but I, I did took quite a leap of faith, really. Um, I didn't have really any programming experience, but I just thought, oh, I think I could do this and I'm excited by it. And I was ready for something new as well. Now you're working at the University of Newcastle, mm-hmm. I believe. And how did that go about? So my master's was at Newcastle too. And it was one of those things where it was a a lucky combination of who you know and who mentions something to you. And I was working part time while I did my master's at Northumbria University and an old colleague of mine had moved to the Newcastle team. She mentioned this new research software engineering team that was opening up and said, oh, you know, why don't you apply for this? To be honest, I may not have applied if she hadn't said that to me because I still wasn't thinking of myself as a programmer or a software engineer. I I knew that I wanted to stay in academia if I could. And the idea of working in industry didn't grab me so much. But I I wasn't really sure what I wanted to do. It was a bit of a where you just have to go for something. and You're not really sure. But actually, it was absolutely perfect timing for me and a perfect role. It was allowing me to enter in this new area of software engineering, but also draw on my previous experience of working in academia in a new team that was all about building something new and supporting each other. So I feel really lucky that that timing works out so brilliantly. And uh, the theme of humanities and art actually hasn't quite disappeared from your work there, because there are two projects that I'd like to find out more about, one of which is called Hands-On Reading. This project was with researchers Dr. Aditi Nafde and Dr. Matt Conies, 
and they are researchers in medieval literature. And this was a, a kind of sub-project as part of a, a wider project called Animating Text Newcastle University. These projects look at new ways that readers might interact with text by creating digital applications. The digital part of Aditi's project called Hands-On Reading is a web application that I worked on with an RSE colleague, Fiona Goldstone. Aditi was looking to explore the role of handwriting after the invention of print. So that's why a kind of medieval um, literature researcher is interested in what people today are doing. What we made was a, um, a little reading application. So it looks maybe a little bit like what we're used to seeing in Kindle um, and mm. other kind of e-readers. But the text only fills the central part of the page. There's a big border. And we, we were inspired by medieval manuscripts. So the background of the page is a kind of, uh, I guess, a kind of mottled cream, which is taken from one of the pages of a manuscript in the special collections at Newcastle University. And the first page has an illuminated letter as well. And the aim of these borders and this idea of mimicking a manuscript is to encourage people to make their own marks on the page as they read it. You can change colours, you can change the, the nib of the pen size a little bit and you can erase. There were lim deliberately limited instructions to users so that some people might want to interact with the text itself, underline things or circle things. But with the idea that maybe, like... Uh, medieval scholars, some people might do some little doodling in the borders or things like that. There are already a number of apps out there that allow handwriting. I mean, you know, you buy an iPad these days or a tablet. Yeah. And you can doodle and draw. So how is that different and what lessons are you learning from this research? Yeah. So I guess what distinguishes this application is that it was trying to combine reading and this drawing or writing interaction we knew that we couldn't compete with the drawing capabilities now that you can get in some of these apps but that we wanted to see well what happens if we change that experience of looking at the page so I mean wouldn't it be wonderful if you could feel like you were drawing on that on vellum as you would you were moving on the tablet but until that's possible we were giving the sense of that with the image And we did even talk about things like, should erasing be possible? Because a medieval scribe couldn't just get out their rubber. They would have had to scrape away no. a layer of the vellum. So we did talk about some of those things and I guess come to a bit of a balance between usability and giving people a sense of writing on some, some real parchment. We know that writing and drawing on tablets, it doesn't feel quite the same as doing so on paper. But that, that kind of experience is, I guess, getting better and better. Although this research project is, is going to continue and, and hopefully go into something bigger, the kind of initial responses that the researcher collected from people were suggesting that handwriting does seem to remain important in terms of getting people to really perhaps read slowly or really interact with the text that's on the page in front of them. Perhaps this is a way of looking for some, I guess, to bring alive text that, you know, lot, I know lots of people who prefer to read real books rather than a Kindle. And I, I guess this is a way of saying, well, how can we bring alive digital texts? 
The second project I'd like to mention is called Digital Storytelling. And from what I understand, it's not just storytelling, it's actually aimed at young fathers and their kids. This is um, a really, really engaging project. Um, I worked with Dr. Michael Richardson, who is a human geographer, and he was already working with a charity, Northeast Young Dads and Lads, and The Seven Stories, which is um, the National Centre for Children's Books, and they're both based in Newcastle. We run a quite a long-running um, project where we ask researchers to come to us with small pilot ideas that they think will help them go on to secure further funding. And it's competitive, so we, we sift through the different applications. Um, and this is one of those. So they tend to be three months part-time, half-time. So quite short and, and sharp projects. And Michael had conducted previous work with this group of young fathers and seven stories. And he found that the young fathers didn't necessarily feel that comfortable entering Usburn, which is the area of Newcastle where Seven Stories is located. And it's it's kind of Newcastle's cultural quarter. It's quite trendy. And they felt that coming from a different area of Newcastle, that they perhaps weren't that welcome there. There was a bit of an invisible barrier. Michael wanted to create something digital that would maybe remove some of those barriers or help the young fathers negotiate them so that they could visit the area with their kids. Again, uh, we didn't have time to create a native app. So this was a web application. And I, I was really pleased, actually, with what we were able to do within that kind of constraint. We created um, what we call a storytelling walk. The app has a little map that you follow. It guides the fathers and the children through a kind of route up to seven stories. And there are points where they're asked to stop on this route and look around them. And they're giving prompts to build a story. So there are some characters in the story. It's pirate themed. So you can name the pirate. You can decide where he's going. And there are augmented reality things that you can spot in the landscape. So they walk along the river. So they can look out to the river and see a pirate ship. Um, they can walk further up and see a treasure chest. And so that it, it was really designed so that hopefully the, the people using the app could almost take ownership of this landscape as they were moving through it. What's the uptake of the app? Do you know uh, how many people actually are using it? What's the feedback? Because this is um, a very located application, I guess. You have to be on the quayside in Newcastle and walk up to seven stories. We had plans to test it with the, um, the young fathers. And I'd already been able to work with a couple of them which was brilliant in the design of it and get their input into it because a lot of them are gamers and they knew they knew what it should feel like to to engage them and their kids because of coronavirus we weren't able to get together in the city center and we still haven't so I'm still waiting for that and that <laughs> will be lovely when we can share that but our hope and we have some ideas in progress our hope is that we might be able to do something using marker-based AR rather than location-based so that they could create similar walks in their local environment, which in a time when we are all restricted on our movement and travel would allow a different interaction within the constraints of what we're experiencing now. We're still waiting for the answer of, of what they think and what we could do further on it. I would like to move on to research software engineering in general. And um, I often see engineers being involved in community project, and so are you. You are the co-founder for HubSkills, 
and it's aimed at local women and help them build digital skills. How do you get involved with that? A couple of years ago, I was involved in facilitating a Tech Mums course locally. And Tech Mums is a social enterprise that gets facilitators across the whole country to run um, courses for mums. That was really good. And I, and I really saw the benefits that the participants experienced from that. And also that I loved doing it as well, selfishly. So I applied for some Newcastle University funding for, they call it their engagement in place fund. So it's it's for right. a really broad set of requirements to enable staff to do community projects. So I applied for this funding was successful to enable me to um, work with a colleague, Justine Carrion Weiss, and she's a researcher at Northumbria University. And we designed a bespoke course trying to really focus on what women in the Northeast might find useful. The course is entry level, so um, it takes women through things like keeping themselves and their families safe online, using Google Drive, and also um, doing some coding. And everyone gets very excited about the coding, including me. And we have a really good relationship with Virgin Money. They give us uh, room to use and um, some laptops to use. We have tried to invite people um, who have done things locally from local charities who are, or who work locally in related areas. So we have someone from a recruiter come and talk about how they, she works to support women returning to work so that there is a variety of voices there and, it, and there's a little bit of community building. So we were partway through our very first delivery of the programme when COVID meant we had to stop. This is in its infancy and we will definitely keep, you know, keep doing it. And hopefully we'll be able to do a course um, every year. And what we learn from previous courses, we'll hopefully be able to feed into the next one. And our kind of dream is that women who have done previous courses will be able to come back and perhaps help facilitate or speak at um, the next course so that there is a kind of continuation of that community. What do you think the impact of that uh, on the community so uh, on the women that you trained yeah so I guess it's really really early days to make any grand claims mm. about that I would say our initial anecdotal feedback from them suggests that they've already found that it's contributed to a confidence and whether that is re-entering the job market after time away or just actually being able to engage with their families around digital um, issues. And we really hope that people will leave the course not feeling scared of the digital world or the online world, but actually able to be, well, you know, I I can face this with a kind of knowledge and hunger for, for more knowledge that means that I can tell my children both how to keep safe, but also what the wonderful things are about the online world. So I guess rather than being able to make any claims for for the benefits, that's what I hope the benefits will be. Going back a little bit back to you, so Mm -hmm. how do you think that your particular background in art and the voluntary contributions you just mentioned, how do you think that has shaped the work that you do at Newcastle University? Yeah, that's that's a good question. I think from an academic perspective, I'm able to confidently talk to researchers and understand what's involved in in that kind of world I guess so that means that it's not a new world for me even though I might be talking to a researcher like Aditi 
research is medieval literature that I know nothing about. And so I think that background is useful. I think, interestingly, a kind of artistic training, I find myself using things from that in terms of my independence, my organisation skills, planning kind of a long-term project, perhaps being a, a little bit comfortable where requirements are a bit woolly. I guess when you are making something or, or pra- practising as an artist, there's a hell of a lot of uncertainty there and you don't really know. <laughs> you might have a, a something in mind, but you've got to see how it goes. But I think probably for me, the most exciting thing things that I've been able to bring with me from from previous experiences are the kind of creative side of things the enthusiasm that's the side of my previous experience experience that I really value very often people say that oh well there's arts and humanities and that's a very creative bit and then there's the nerdy bit which is (laughs) the computer science in in the sense that it's a contrast right Mm -hmm. one is creative the other one is not but I think that's not true. So what, what do you think about that? I agree. <laughs> I am the same person, whether I'm doing some programming or doing some sewing. And yes, I need different knowledge bases. Absolutely. But there is nothing to say that somebody can't be good at doing both and that actually they can't benefit each other. And I would hope that I produce better work as a software engineer because I'm able to think about not just the aesthetics of something, but the kind of, does this address the problem? You know, bring in my kind of research head, so to speak. You know, what questions does this throw up? And I hope that rather than them being kind of different hats that I take on and take off, that actually, you know, I'm just a rounded person. And I think it's a shame that we might think that that computer science is the domain of the nerdy only. You know, I have colleagues who are like, who are vastly more experienced in software engineering than me and are really, really technically skilled. And it is a pleasure to work alongside them. And actually, I hope that there are different things that those different team members that can bring. And I hope that I bring something different maybe to that, that would mean that, you know, we benefit from all those different types of people that are that are on the team. Uh, which brings me to the next question, actually, because you you did sidestep, right? You started on arts yeah. and humanities and now you moved into computer science. So what kind of advice would you give to people who would like to do something similar, sort of change the field completely? I, I mean, this question is, is tricky because it's hard to see yourself in a position to give advice sometimes, I think, isn't it? How I've got by is by valuing my transferable skills going into new things with enthusiasm. And I think that enthusiasm gets you a long way. I guess I've had to learn how to ask people for help. And that's not always easy. You can feel for all those reasons about feeling like you're being demanding on all those kind of things. But actually, on the whole, people value being able to help each other, don't they? So I've really benefited Mm. from being able to work alongside colleagues, find opportunities to do projects together and just been open to that new learning. I mean, you were quite fortunate in finding a role at University of Newcastle, but sometimes when people, and I can speak out of my own experiences, when they want to change field, it's not quite so simple. No. What kind of advice would you give to the recruiters and the people actually hiring? 
Oh, so I guess if I'm kind of trying to imagine what I would say to a recruiter, I would say really quite similar to my previous answer in terms of looking at transferable skills and being open to those and also valuing the soft skills along with more technical capabilities because you need a team that can cover different bases. And one of those bases is being able to talk about what you do in a way that cuts across different disciplines. And I think there's, there is definitely a role for, for people who can bring people together. So if mm. you see people who have done different things, had an unconventional career path, then you might be able to assume that they might have some of those skills. If they have done that and managed to, I guess, achieve things in different areas, then you would hope that that's a sign that that someone is able to take on new things, you know, at a run with it, with that kind of drive and determination to succeed. Um, so perhaps that requires imagination or thinking outside the box. I guess it probably also requires a bit of risk taking. Yeah, no, that, that's a very good answer, actually. So because, yeah, I, I've been on the recruiting side mm-hmm. as well, and it, it is a balance between taking a risk. But then on the other hand, any new hire is a risk, yeah. whether you know they fit the bill 100% or whether they actually come from a different field. I would like to come to the end of the podcast now and uh, usually end with two questions. And the first one is maybe a bit of a difficult one. <laughs> if you consider yourself far ahead into the future and you look back to your career, what do you hope you'd have achieved by then? I do find this question quite difficult. You're right. I know it's also, it's a nice question too, because I guess it's a little bit of a question saying you can have a little dream for a moment. I mean, I would always hope that I would be working on my technical skills and be developing more there and become more proficient with that side of it. But perhaps what springs to mind as most important to me is perhaps the, um, I don't know quite how to phrase it, but the kind of soft side of my job or the side outside the actual technical part of my job in terms of, Mm -hmm. I'd, I'd really like to see that I could have carried on developing strong relationships with people across the university to really further that spirit of collaboration. So I guess there's, there's that side of it. And maybe if I am having a little little dream, then personally, I'd like to think that I might have helped other women, people from different backgrounds, enter software engineering or see that they could take on digital skills as part of their job. So whether that's a, you know, a researcher who's able to um, do a little bit more, write a script, create a little website, or someone who actually says, you know, I want to be a programmer. Well, helping other people's grow is actually <laughs> very rewarding. I agree. Yeah. The final question is, what do you do in your spare time? Are you hindered already? So I do, I do a lot of making things. I do a lot of sewing and a lot of printmaking. I guess for the love of it... And, you know, I'm quite often doing things for other people. It's definitely a way that I um, connect with friends and family. I am somebody who likes to be outside. So that takes up a good part of my spare time as well. I thank you so much for your time. And I wish you all the best for the future. (laughs) My pleasure. It's lovely to talk. Thank you so much for listening. We hope you enjoyed the show and we would like to see you again in future. If you like this episode, it'll be great if you could leave a review wherever you download your podcasts from. And with that, goodbye.